Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the reality of the resurrection of your son. And uh, we're grateful for his death for our sins. And, uh, and pray that you would help us to uh, celebrate that appropriately this morning, that we would glorify you uh, in, a, in a manner that is worthy of the glory that you deserve and that you would stir our hearts to um, greater faith and hope and, uh, and love as a result of the resurrection, and that uh, your Spirit would be working in our hearts to conform us to the image of your Son. We pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thanks for coming to Theological Equipping Class. All semester we have been talking about, and we will continue to talk about, what we're calling applied theology. In uh, other contexts, it's also sometimes called practical theology or just discipleship 101. That's kind of what we're talking about. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic that's at least somewhat related to uh, Easter. Uh, in fact, we're actually talking about two topics, and, uh, and so uh, all weekend... If you've been thinking about Easter, then all weekend you've been thinking about the, resur- the, the death and resurrection of Christ, and that being an expression of this idea of his self-denial, that Christ denied himself, his own will, and, uh, and give, uh, gave up his life for us and for our salvation. And so we're talking about a similar idea today in the idea of our own self-denial. And then in addition to that, we're also talking about the discipline of simplicity, so we're going to talk about these two different disciplines, self-denial and then simplicity. But first, let's talk about the big picture of discipleship. I want you to think for a second. If I were to ask you, don't blurt it out, but if I were to ask you, how would you define discipleship? Think about how you would actually answer that question. What is discipleship? Well, there are obviously a number of ways that you could answer that question. First, you could just kind of quote from the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what does he say to do? He gives two commands baptize and teach. Teach what? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That's one way you could define discipleship is discipleship is learning to obey Christ's commands. That would be a good definition. But another way that you could define it, and this is kind of the way that we've been talking about it this semester, is to to think of it as imaging Christ, as being conformed to the image of Christ. It's being like Christ, imitating Christ. And one of the fundamental attributes of Christ that we celebrate as Christians is the fact that he was sinless. That's what makes the death of Christ so profound. Every year, millions of people die around the world, and we don't celebrate their death as being some sort of unique event because it didn't purchase redemption for anyone. The fact that Christ is sinless is what gives him the opportunity for his righteousness to be imputed to us. So uh, discipleship, if we're going to think about it as being transformed into the image of Christ, means in some sense that we're learning to put to death sin because Christ is sinless. So if we're going to be conformed to his image, something has to be done with the residue of sin that remains within us. And so that idea of putting sin to death is what theologians call mortification. The mortification of sin, the mortification of the flesh. By the Spirit, 
through the gospel, those who have been born again have the responsibility and also the opportunity, again, by the Spirit, by grace, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's mortification. Not only that, but we also have a responsibility and also an opportunity to make alive the things of the Spirit. So we put to death the things of the flesh, that's mortification. We make alive the things of the Spirit, that's called vivification. So discipleship entails this kind of two-sided coin. We mortify, mortify the flesh and we vivify the Spirit. We put to death sinful things and we cultivate that which is holy and good. So some of the disciplines that we've been discussing the past few weeks are more geared towards cultivating vivification. When you think about prayer, when you think about Bible reading and those kind of things, that's more in line with vivification, although there's aspects of mortification there. But today our focus is on two disciplines that are much more geared towards cultivating this idea of mortification, that we're putting to death the things of the flesh as we engage in self-denial and also pursue simplicity. So let's talk about both of those. And one of the things, uh, again, that we've come back to over and over again is that discipleship is imitation. That's what I want you to think about. When you think of the word discipleship, I want you to think of the concept of imitation. We are imitating Christ. And that's true even beyond Christianity. This isn't just something that's related to Christianity. That's true in other spheres. Think about being discipled in some sort of sport. If you're learning golf or you're learning tennis or something, there's a sense in which your discipleship is also imitation in that sport, right? You imitate your coach's swing or you imitate the way that, uh, you know, uh, Steph Curry shoots a ball or whatever it might be. There's this sense of imitation. So when it comes to Christian discipleship, we serve, for instance, because God is the one who serves. It's one of the reasons that you've noticed this semester that we've always started with kind of giving this picture of God as being the one that we are imitating or Christ being the one that we are imitating. And so uh, we serve, at least in part, because God is the one who serves. He's demonstrated that. He's demonstrated it for our observation and for our imitation. Or we're on mission because God is the one who is ultimately on mission. Or we treasure Scripture because Christ treasures Scripture and so forth. All of the disciplines, you can kind of see that idea. So when it comes to self-denial, the fundamental reason that we are to deny ourselves is because Christ mirrored self-denial for our sake. And the clearest demonstration of that is something that we celebrate this weekend, which is the crucifixion. Consider Christ's prayer in the garden. He's in the garden, about to be betrayed. In Matthew 26, 39, he says, he's going a little further. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So think about the implications of that for a second. There's a sense in which Christ has to deny his own will. He's a normal human, and thus he has normal human instincts for self-preservation. So in light of that, he desires to live. He, there's a sense in which he desires to not have to go through the crucifixion. And yet he's not just human, he's also God, and so he submits that desire, he submits that will to a greater will, to a higher will, to his divine will. He says, not what I will, but what you will. One of the things we talked about when we talked about uh, Trinitarianism and Christology before is that God himself, you think of the triune God, has only one will because he's only one nature. But the Son of God has two natures and therefore two wills, is the divine will and the 
human will. So the crucifixion is this clearest place where you see this idea of Christ having to deny himself. But it's not the only place where we see that idea of self-denial. Consider what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice there's two aspects of Christ's work that are mentioned here. You certainly have a clear reference to his crucifixion, says that he becomes obedient even to the point of death. But that's not the only act that's mentioned here. You also have a reference to his incarnation. It says he takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of men. And notice the language that it uses there. It says that he empties himself. So what does that mean? Well, some people think that this means that the Son of God empties himself in the incarnation. He empties himself of his deity. He gives up his godness to be a man. He gives up his deity when he becomes human. That's an idea that's called the kenotic theory. The Greek word translated as empty here in Philippians 2 is kenosis. So it's called the kenotic theory. So the kenotic theory... Is the, is the idea that kenosis refers to Christ emptying himself of his deity, of his divinity, of his godness. And that's actually a heresy, right? That's not at all what Orthodox Christians have ever believed about the incarnation. Christ doesn't empty himself of his deity. Rather, Christians have always believed that at the incarnation, what happens is that the Son of God remains what he was, that is God, while at the same time becoming what he was not, that is man. So he remains God, he simply adds to his deity a human nature in addition to that. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's this historic creed that's been confessed. So what Christ gives up, what he empties himself of, isn't his deity, isn't his godness, but rather his glory. He lays down his right, for instance, to not die. God, by virtue of the fact that he is God, is immortal. He is eternal. He is beyond the reaches of death. He's beyond the reaches of change. Christ gives that up in his, uh, in his humanity. That's self-denial. And notice how this is related to us. It says, have this mind among yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Count others more significant. That each of you look not only to your own interests. So again, this is a model for us to follow. The idea of Christ's self-denial becomes this example for us to follow. A model of self-denial, of humility, of sacrifice. That's something that we are to imitate. You see that not only here, you see it even more explicitly in passages like Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So here's the actual command. If you're wondering, is this just an implication? Christ denied himself, and so therefore we imply that we are to deny ourselves. No, 
It's explicit right here. If you desire to come after Christ, you must deny yourself. Why? Why must you deny yourself? Well, according to Christ, yourself is the problem. Your biggest problem in life isn't your parents, it isn't your ex-wife, it isn't your boss, it isn't the government, it isn't another foreign government or something like that, it's not terrorists, it's not mercury poisoning, you know, whatever it might be, your biggest problem is you. No one has hurt you more than you have hurt yourself. No one is a worse enemy to you than you are to yourself. Look at James chapter 1. 13 through 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice the problem according to James 3. It isn't God. It isn't even other people. Your problem is your own desires. So biblically, the call is for you to deny yourself. I mean, this is radically countercultural, especially today. It's always actually been countercultural. The essence of sin is to indulge your flesh and your desires and so forth. But particularly today, in our culture today of expressive individualism and so forth, culture today is all about self-love and self-empowerment and self-care and self-preservation and self-esteem. The last thing that culture says that you should do is to deny yourself. Right? If you're attracted to the same sex, what does culture say? Go with it. If you feel like you're another gender, you feel like you're no gender at all, what does culture say? That's all good. If you want to eat whatever you want, you never exercise, you want to be obese, it's fat shaming for someone to say otherwise, right? To thine own self be true. But Christ says, deny yourself and take up your cross. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So the biblical message isn't the worldly message or even a message you might see in some churches of kind of your best life now. We've talked about this before, but if your best life is not right now, that means you aren't a Christian. You better be as happy and as rich and as healthy as possible now because things are about to get infinitely and internally worse. As one pastor said, the only way you're living your best life now is if you're going to hell. So it's clear that part of the path of discipleship involves self-denial, that's a command. That's an implication as well. But what does that mean? What should we deny ourselves of? And the main thing the Bible says, whenever it talks about self-denial, the main concept that's in view there is sin. I'm going to read off a host of passages. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Romans 8, for, you, uh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5, 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
The flesh there isn't referring to your body, it's referring to your fleshly impulse, that is, your sinful disposition. One of the most fundamental facts about sin, one of the things you have to understand when you think about sin, is just how holistic and how far-reaching and how pervasive sin's effects have been. One of the great errors, one of the great false teachings, the great heresies of the church is that we try to dilute, we try to minimize sin. We try to keep it in this little box and say it's not been as pervasive. Part of what we mean when we talk about total depravity is the idea that uh, the totality of man has been affected by sin. Sin doesn't just affect your actions. It affects your affections, your mind, your will, your, uh, your desires, even your very body. There's this totality to the, to the effects of sin upon mankind. It affects the head, the heart, and the hands. So you see an emphasis in Scripture on putting not only your actions to death, but even your desires to death, because sin ultimately springs up from our desires. We read that just a second ago in James. You even see it in the Garden of Eden. Before Eve takes of the fruit, what does she do? She notices that it looks good. There's this desire that springs up within her. She covets it and she takes it. So our desires are the problem and Christ commands us to put them to death. But how do we do that? How do we actually practically put sin to death? The most lasting way to do that is by replacing sinful desires with other desires. You replace lesser desires with greater desires. There's a really good sermon that was preached um, a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. The sermon's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I highly commend that you find the, uh, the transcript online and, uh, and read it. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. In it, Thomas talk, talks, uh, Chalmers talks about this idea that nature abhors a vacuum. And the only way that you are to drive out one desire is by replacing it with a greater desire. For instance, let's imagine you grew up someplace other than the promised land of Texas. And wherever you grew up, your only exposure to Mexican food is Taco Bell, right? And so for you, that is Mexican food, and you love it. And you think that what you order at Taco Bell is authentic, south-of-the-border Mexican food, right? So you assume, if I ever make it to Cancun or Cabo or something like that, if I ever go to Mexico, I'm going to just order a Mexican pizza. Or I'm going to order a Cool Ranch Doritos Locos Taco or whatever it might be, right? So you love your experience there at, uh, at, at Taco Bell, but then you move to Texas and you stumble upon the glories of Mikosina or Chewy's or La Hacienda or something like that, and you realize that you can actually eat Tex-Mex and not necessarily pay for it the next day, right? So rather than going to Taco Bell, the next time you have this craving for Mexican food, you go to Chewy's or Mikosina or whatever it might be, right? What's happening there? Well, you're trading the expulsive power of Taco Bell <laughs> for the expulsive power of a greater affection, Right? Many of you know I was single until I was 35, and so my diet, as you might expect, uh, wasn't that healthy, the kind of thing you might expect a single 35-year-old male to eat. 
Then I got married, and my wife is actually an incredible cook, but occasionally I'll get nostalgic, and I'll think, you know what I haven't had in a long time? I haven't had a Totino's party pizza, or I haven't had Chef Boyardee mini ravioli in a can. So some night when Casey's out, I'll think, I'm going to get one of those. So I'll go to Tom Thumb, and I'll buy one, and you know what? I always think after eating it, I always think it wasn't worth it, right? Why not? Because my tastes have changed. And that's what happens with the gospel. Your tastes change. Things that you used to find lovely and beautiful and good and appetizing are kind of distasteful now. There's something off about them. So it's significant. Immediately before Colossians 3, verse 5, where it says to put to death what is earthly in you, it first says this, Colossians 3, 1 through 2, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Notice that idea. Set your mind on things above. There's a connection there. It's by setting our minds on things above, vivification, that our hearts are filled with a new love for Christ that enables us to put sin to death. That's mortification. In other words, you don't put sin to death by just kind of white-knuckling obedience. You do it by replacing one desire with a greater desire. If you try to put sin to death without first filling your heart with Christ, the result is going to be empty legalism. It doesn't work. But when Christ bids us to die, he isn't asking us to give up our pleasure and to give up our joy and to give up our happiness. He's asking us to give up fast food happiness for the sake of this greater feast of joy. We've quoted this from C.S. Lewis dozens of times. We'll do it dozens of times more. But C.S. Lewis describes it like this. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the main thing the Bible talks about when it talks about self-denial, the main concept there is that we are to deny ourselves our flesh. We are to deny ourselves things that are actually sinful. But that isn't the only thing that the Bible is going to talk about when it talks about self-denial. For instance, we've talked about fasting before. Fasting is a form of self-denial, in which you deny yourself something which isn't sinful. Food isn't sinful. Food isn't even morally neutral. Food is a gift from God. It's inherently good. But that's a form of self-denial for the sake of concentrating on prayer and so forth. Or giving to others. That's another way. You're denying yourself something that isn't sinful. Money isn't sinful. It isn't even morally neutral. Again, it's a gift. So another category of self-denial would, be to, it would involve giving up even things that are considered adiaphora, morally neutral things, for the sake of something greater. We talked about this quite a bit in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Romans. There are times that we should be willing to deny ourselves certain of God's gifts for the sake of some greater good, whether that's the love of our brother or whatever it might be. So along with the idea of denying ourselves, Sin and denying ourselves these adiaphora things is this kind of all-encompassing thing. 
of dying to our preferences. Dying to our identity, any sort of identity that we have that isn't aligned with Christ. Dying to our purposes, dying to our plans, dying to our goals. That's what Christ says in the garden, right? Not as I will, but as you will. That's self-denial. So self-denial really involves putting to death any aspect of our being, our thought, our desires, our preferences, etc. that rob us of our love for Christ, whether those things are sinful or not. In fact, oftentimes, the more that we mature, the more that we are conformed to the image of Christ, we'll find that the biggest challenge for us isn't necessarily things that are explicitly sinful, but rather morally neutral things. Things like television or sports or so forth. What makes them most dangerous isn't that they're sinful. What makes them dangerous is because they're not sinful. And therefore they are more alluring and more subtle and they go unnoticed. But as C.H. Uh, uh, Spurgeon said, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, and that one prayer is this that I may die to self and live wholly to him. This then brings up the question, is this asceticism? Is what we're talking about asceticism? Is that what I'm just telling you to do, that you should just kind of self-flagellate? That's a really important question because asceticism is bad. It's sinful. Colossians chapter 2, immediately before what we read in Colossians 3, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right, so Paul has just said asceticism is bad. It's linked with, a, uh, with legalism. It isn't actually effective in dealing. It just cleans the outside of the cup. It doesn't do anything with the inside of the cup. So asceticism is bad. So if self-denial that I'm talking about is a form of asceticism, then that's false teaching. So what is asceticism? Well, think of, self, uh, or think of uh, asceticism as self-denial that's taken out of context and took it, taken to an extreme end. It's this aggressive and excessive an extreme form of self-denial or self-discipline that's often built upon, and this is a really important aspect of asceticism. Asceticism is built upon this underlying philosophical assumption that the goal of Christianity is to renounce all pleasure and to renounce all possessions. Rather than what Scripture actually says, which is that pleasure and possessions are great. They just aren't ultimate. So asceticism, what we see with that philosophical conviction, is that asceticism is going to renounce pleasure and possessions, whereas biblical self-denial isn't going to renounce them. It's simply going to put them in their proper place. One of the things the Puritans talk about when they talk about sin is sin is often not just a sinful desire. It's taking a good desire and exalting it into a sinful place. It's a dis disordered desire. Think of the word disordered. There is a proper order. You have one, two, three. You're to love God first and then love, you know, whatever the second and third and fourth and so forth. And so what a disordered desire is, is maybe you should love it at a seven and instead you have it at a two or a one or whatever it might be. So 
Asceticism renounces pleasure and possessions. Biblical self-denial simply is going to reorder them appropriately, put them in their proper place. Aesthetics, for example, would say all sex is bad. We should all refrain from sex. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, that's a false idea. Sex is actually good. In fact, it's even commanded for spouses. Although self-denial might say something like Paul says, it might be appropriate to occasionally refrain for a brief season in order to devote yourself to prayer. That's self-denial. Asceticism says sex is bad. Self-denial says maybe for this week, We're going to refrain in order to fast and pray or something like that. Or ascetics would say that all possessions are bad. You should always sell everything and give that to the poor. Self-denial says that you should steward steward your possessions for God's glory and the good of others. And sometimes you should give even beyond your own means. Or ascetics would say that you should never indulge your desire for food and drink. The Bible speaks actually really harshly about that idea. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Notice that teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So notice the idea of forbidding marriage or uh, requiring abstinence from foods. He says that's the teaching of demons and deceitful spirits. So yes, there is a time and a place to abstain and fast. Jesus, for instance, wasn't sinful whenever he fasted. John the Baptist, when he fasted, or whatever it might be. There's a time and place to refrain, but not in the way that the ascetic thinks. In other words, there are these two dangers that we have to avoid. Think of driving along this mountain road. And on either side, you have these ditches that go into these great canyons. And your goal is to stay on the road and not fall on either side. There are these two dangers to avoid. The first is the idea that you should never sacrifice. You should never deny yourself any sort of morally neutral pleasure. You should indulge every whim and every fancy. That's really easy for us to see. That's not biblical. Obviously, there are things we have to deny ourselves. But the second danger is to say you should always refrain. You should never eat meat. You should never drink wine. You should never have sex. You should never whatever it might be. The biblical response is to say sometimes. The biblical response is to say, neither, I'm neither going to live in constant feasting nor constant fasting, but rather moderation. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes might say, there's a time to partake and a time to refrain. And wisdom demands that you not just create a law. That's what we want to do. In our flesh, we are legalists. We want to create laws. At the end of this teaching, you want me to say, this is how much you should fast. This is how much you should give. This is how much you should deny yourself. This is how often you should drink. This is how often you should eat. But wisdom demands that you not create a law, but rather rather walk by the Spirit. As Paul writes in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice how Paul acts. Not that Paul is sinless, but he is an example for us. He does say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And notice Paul, in his maturity, has reached a point where he says, I can embrace plenty, and I can also embrace hunger. I can embrace abundance and also embrace need. It isn't this either-or sort of thing for him. It's both and. Why is that? Because he's learned contentment. And that leads us to the idea of simplicity. In most theological contexts, most of the time, if we're talking in theological equipping class about simplicity, most of the time we're talking about the idea of the doctrine of God's simplicity, which is the idea that God isn't composed of parts. God is simple. By that we don't mean like he is stupid or ignorant or something like that. We mean that all that is in God is God. Herman Bovink says it like this, Christian theology has always been more or less conscious of, the, uh, conscious of this calling. On the whole, its teaching has been that God is simple, that is sublimely free from all composition, and that therefore one cannot make any real or ontological distinction between his being and his attributes. Each attribute is identical with God's being. He is what he possesses. In speaking of creatures, we make all sorts of distinctions between what they are and what they have. A person, for example, is still human, even though he or she has lost the image of God and has become a sinner. Or you're still human if you lose your arm or your leg or something like that. But in God, all his attributes are identical with his being. God is light through and through. He is all mind, all wisdom, all logos, all spirit and so forth. And God, to be is the same as to be wise, which is the same as to be good, which is the same as to be powerful. One and the same thing is stated whether it, it, it be said that God is eternal or immortal or good or just. Whatever God is, he is that completely and simultaneously. God has no properties but his pure essence. God's properties are really the same as his essence. They neither differ from his essence, nor do they differ materially from each other. So the simplicity of God means that it isn't like God is composed of various attributes that are somehow in juxtaposition or competition or something, right? Think of a pie chart, and let's say the pie chart represents God, and that chart is divided into maybe 12 pieces. One piece is labeled love, another is wrath, another is wisdom, another is holiness, and so forth. The idea of simplicity that the church has always held is the idea that that pie chart image that's in your mind is heretical, it's false. It divides God as if he's just a composite of all these various attributes, when in reality, he is not composed of parts. All that is in God is God. Love isn't just a slice of his being, his entire being is love. Justice isn't just a type, uh, a slice of his being, it's all of his being. So that's the doctrine of simplicity. We've talked about it for, before, and I'm not gonna go into more detail than that, because that's not what we mean we're talking about the discipline of simplicity. So most of the time when we say simplicity, we're talking about the simplicity of God. That's not how we're using that word 
today what is meant by the discipline as opposed to the doctrine of simplicity is simply the idea that in denying ourselves, part of what we're doing is pursuing a more simple lifestyle. Let's take a, a, a survey, all right? Raise your hand if sometime in the past few months someone has asked you how you're doing and you have thought or actually answered, I'm busy. Raise your hand if you thought or answered that question that way. I'm busy. Right, raise your hand now if at any point over the past year you felt exhausted. At any point in the past year have you felt anxious? At any point in the past year have you felt overwhelmed? All right. Almost universal. Probably some of you just don't like to raise your hand. You're exhausted and overwhelmed at the question, right? <laughs> You've got too many emails. You've got too many errands to run. You have too much laundry to do. You have too many projects to manage, too many chores to accomplish, too many kids' activities, and on and on you could go. Life today is marked by this profound restlessness and anxiousness and overwhelmingness, if that were a word. We long for a simple life. This isn't just something that Christians long for. Even secular culture recognizes this. Life is ever more fragmented and unsatisfied. And that's not just contemporary culture. Think back to uh, Henry uh, Thoreau, right? His goal was to pursue simplify. Simplify, simplify. That was his motto. So what did he do? What did Thoreau do? He moved where? He moved to Walden. He moved to the woods. And that same sort of tactic, maybe on a lesser level, defines what most people think of when they think of pursuing the simple life today. Most people really kind of do the same thing that Thoreau did. They just don't end up actually physically moving. Maybe your favorite lifestyle blogger talks about how to simplify your life. Or maybe some magazine that you read commends the glories of minimalism. Unfortunately, most of those solutions, ironically, just make things harder. They clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty. After all, the advice that most magazines or most bloggers or whatever it might be, not operating from a Christian worldview, the, the, the solution that most of them would prescribe would be something like, you should just make your own furniture, then you'll be less anxious. Or grow your own food. Or you should just put together a massive garage sale. What's the problem with that? That just gives you another task to be anxious about. It creates more anxiety, right? You tell me to make furniture? I can't do that, right? I can barely change a light bulb. So it just makes us more and more and more anxious. There's nothing wrong with those things. If you want to get off the grid, if you want to farm, you want to raise animals, more power to you. But unless your heart changes, all you're doing is trading one chaos for another. You'll find yourself burdened by a new anxiety because the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't the world. The problem isn't technology. Again, we saw, think about how much more technologically advanced we are today than in the 19th century when Thoreau was writing those words, and yet he still felt it. So the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't culture. The problem isn't the government. The problem is our own life. It's not your work. It's not your kids' sports. The problem is your own heart, your own desires. 
Richard Foster says, simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle, and both are necessary. Some people want to pursue the inward reality, but they don't change the external uh, circumstances. That doesn't work. And especially in secular culture, they want to change the outward circumstances without dealing with the heart. That doesn't work either. The idea of simplicity doesn't mean that we clean the outside of the cup only, but it does entail that in some sense, we do make changes to our external circumstances, especially as it relates to our closets and our calendars. Let's talk about both of those by talking about simplicity as it relates to our possessions and our time. Talk about possessions first. Contemporary culture has a really funny way of taking this biblical vice, this idea that from a biblical perspective is a negative thing, and we kind of turn it into a virtue. Right? So we, we covet, but we don't call it covetous today. We don't call it covetousness. We call it ambition. Or we hoard. We don't call it hoarding. We call it abundance or, uh, of caution or prudence. We've convinced ourselves greed is good, as a famous 80s movie declared. And the Bible warns us against that. It warns us against the allure of wealth and possessions. As we talked about when we discussed the discipline of giving, the Bible doesn't say that wealth and money and possessions are evil, but it does say that they're dangerous. There is this peril that's associated with our possessions. For example, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice there that desire to be rich, that's a temptation. Temptation in and of itself is not sinful. Jesus himself was tempted. But when you fall into the temptation... As James says, that's when temptation gives birth and it becomes sin or it conceives and turns into sin. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Or later on, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, as Richard Foster notes, contemporary culture is plagued by a passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. In addition to psychotic, I would say suicidal. What does it uh, forfeit a man to gain the whole world and trade his soul, as Jesus says? And unfortunately, we see this profound corollary between our possessions and our anxiety, our sense of feeling overwhelmed and stressed and restless. Think back to being a kid, and there would be a big storm. I remember being in college, 
And I would be so excited whenever it would hail, all right? For one thing I knew, I was going to get an insurance claim on my car that was already paid off, so I just got cash. It was like any time it hailed, that was like God's ATM, just getting money to me, all right? My friends and I would put on helmets. We'd go outside with baseball bats. We'd try to hit hail. Or we'd see who could run the furthest without any sort of protective padding. You know, I'm surprised none of us got knocked out or something like that. All right, hell storms, though, for me, were these opportunities for fun. Raise your hand if you think I think of them that way today. I hate the hell, right? Why? Because I have a home, and that home has a deductible. And I have a vehicle that I actually care about. Those possessions have increased my concerns. They've, they've cultivated this low-level stress in me when storms come. Am I saying that you should just the solution is you just don't own anything that you care about at all? Of course not. But I am saying that you need to be allure, aware of the allure of mammon, of wealth, of possessions. As the Puritan Thomas Watson said, the stomach is sooner filled than the eye. In other words, lust is insatiable. Not just sexual lust, but covetousness, greed, avarice. So self-denial and simplicity mean that sometimes we should deny ourselves the latest gadget, the bigger house, the new car, whatever it might be. Not always. Again, we don't swing the pendulum from the prosperity gospel to the poverty gospel, the poverty gospel of asceticism, but at least sometimes we deny ourselves these pleasures for the sake of a greater pleasure. We displace one affection with a greater affection. As the author of Proverbs 30 writes, I think this is a great motto just for you to think through. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see that throughout the history of Israel, right? When they are, whenever they are fed... They forget God. When things are going well, they worship false idols. But when they don't have enough, what do they do? They complain, they murmur, they accuse God. There's this healthy medium there that it's talking about. And if our closets are cluttered, how much more are our calendars? Think about all the things on your calendar, work, kids' sports, vacations, hobbies, whatever it might be. We feel constantly rushed, constantly busy, constantly like there is never enough time. And Scripture actually speaks about our use of time. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Or Ephesians 5.15-16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That phrase, making the best use of, could also be translated as redeem, Redeem the time. Some translations actually translate it that way. So imagine you have a gift certificate to a fancy restaurant. It's a free meal, but it expires at the end of the year. So you either have to redeem it or it goes away. That's what time is like. Every day has 86,400 seconds. How many of them on average are you really proud of the way that you redeemed? How many of them are wasted on lesser things? things that don't matter. That doesn't mean that you need to quit your job. You just read the Bible and pray all day. Jared talked even last week about how God commands us to work, and that's a way of glorifying him. That's a way that we actually redeem the time is by working hard and by resting hard. 
Again, there's no formula. It's just faith working through love. And rather than creating some sort of law, we should look for principles of wisdom to simplify our schedules, how not to be constrained by the tyranny of the urgent, to instead have space to prioritize our calendars for kingdom purposes. So with that in mind, I want to end by giving a few practical tips for pursuing uh, simplicity with a caveat that this is the lesson that I've most felt like I'm having to preach to myself. Right? I feel like I'm pretty good at reading Scripture or memorizing Scripture, whatever it might be. Self-denial and simplicity is something I will struggle with my entire life. So I'm preaching this to myself. But number one, prioritize your life. You've heard the illustration before about trying to fit rocks and gravel and sand into a container, and you have to add them in a certain order or they won't all fit. Well, the same is true when thinking about Simplicity, when thinking about your possessions and thinking about your calendars and so forth. When it comes to budgeting, what are your priorities? Do those priorities actually stir your affections for Christ? Or do they, do they distract you from joy? Or what about your schedule? Does your schedule press you toward Christ and the church? Or does it pull you away? I want to give one word of caution here parents with kids doing sports. I love sports going up, growing up. I played just about every one that was uh, offered in Baytown where I grew up. But that was back when no one scheduled things on Sundays, right? Now, most leagues have no problem with that. Leagues even have you traveling throughout the weekend or whatever. I'm not saying that you should never miss a church service in order to do some sort of hobby, hobby. But I am saying that your kids will notice the patterns that you establish. Jesus says, what does it gain a man to gain the, or what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Likewise, what does it profit a child to gain a scholarship? But as a result of that, to miss out on the importance of the local church. That's a really, really, really poor trade. It's a really bad investment. If real, consistent, active participation in a local church isn't a massive priority in your life, I'm talking like number one or number two, then you aren't thinking biblically. That's the first thing. You need to prioritize your life. You need to prioritize your life according to a biblical worldview. Number two, live below your means. Some people live over their means. Obviously, that's a problem. They're crushed by debt. Others are too you know, financially responsible for that. So they live a lifestyle they can afford. I think biblical wisdom would suggest not living above your means, not living at your means, but rather living below your means. Living at a level that will allow you to give to others in particular. One of the things we saw as we looked at work last week is that you should work so that you will have something to give to others. That's connected in the theology of work. Part of the reason we work is to bless others. As Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So maybe the next promotion you get. That doesn't mean you get a bigger house or you get a new car, but instead you increase your giving to the church or to a nonprofit, or you help support a family who has needs or whatever it might be. Am I saying you should never upgrade your house? You should never upgrade your car? No, I'm not saying that. Again, we always want to look for the law. Instead, I think we need to find wisdom. I'm saying you need to consider it carefully, not just reflexively think, I can, therefore I should. Third, way to pursue simplicity is to establish healthy rhythms of work and rest. In particular, that you should work hard and rest hard. 
Part of the challenge of contemporary culture today is that we have this tendency to blend those together in ways that previous cultures didn't have that opportunity. If you're a farmer, at some point in the day, it gets too dark for you to farm. That's not the case today. It's never too dark for you to do emails. It's never too dark for you to respond to phone calls or whatever it might be. And that lack of firm boundaries between work time and rest time and family time and so forth creates this context for a really frenetic, disconnected life. Maybe you find yourself doing emails when you're watching a movie or at the dinner table, whatever it might be. So I think creating these boundaries is helpful, establishing these healthy rhythms of both work and rest. Everyone in this room probably errs in one direction or another. Some of us err more towards working when we should be resting. Some of us err towards resting when we should be working. Neither error is healthy. Fourth, Practical tip for pursuing simplicity is cultivate contentment. Don't chase the American dream. Be content with what you have. That's probably the biggest struggle in a culture that is constantly uh, bombarded with advertisements and so forth or with, uh, with products that have built-in obsolescence. If you want to keep your iPhone for 15 years, good luck, right? It won't work in 15 years. Apple's made sure of that. All right, so be content with what you have. That means cultivating gratitude, which is something we'll talk about actually in a few weeks. We'll have an entire lesson on celebration and gratitude. Bear in mind what Paul says in Philippians. He's learned the secret of contentment. In other words, it's a mystery, but it's a mystery that God desires that we actually figure out. And then lastly, declutter your life. Declutter your home, declutter your schedule, declutter your free time. There was a book a while back, uh, on minimalism, where the idea was to ask yourself whether each possession brings you joy or not. So I want to give a similar suggestion. When it comes to your possessions, when it comes to your calendars, when it comes to your hobbies and so forth, ask yourself, not this question, does it give you joy, but rather, is this actually cultivating or distracting you from loving God and others? And if it's distracting you, are you willing to deny yourself of that? I want to end with these two quotes, one by C.S. Lewis and one by St. Augustine. And then we'll pray. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Or as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray, and then we'll have time for maybe a couple of questions. Father, again, I thank you for uh, an opportunity this morning to think about self-denial and think about simplicity and confess that uh, this is a challenge for me, and I need to die to my flesh. And I know the same is true for countless men and women in this room and in this church and who might be listening to this audio at a later date, and so I pray that by your Spirit you would help impress this upon us, that we would be so filled with a love for your Son 
that the things of this world would not hold such a grip on our lives. I just confess that this can only happen by the work of your grace, by the work of your spirit. So I pray that he would apply these things to our hearts and our minds in Christ's name. Amen.